The God's Peculiar People podcast presents recording of the life of D.L. Moody by his son, William R. Moody. Life of D.L. Moody, Chapter 21, The London Campaign Mr. Moody turned a deaf ear to all the invitations that poured in from London during his first two years in Great Britain. For the spirit of unity in the earlier calls that would indicate the cooperation of all denominations was at first lacking, and until this was assured, he did not feel that the time was ripe. When he was in Edinburgh, Hugh M. Matheson, a London businessman, made the trip to Scotland to hear him. It was the last day of the meetings. There was the usual large attendance, and Mr. Matheson found no opportunity to present the invitation that he had brought with him. Afterward, he went to Thurso, where they had a delightful interview. They discussed London and the best means for preparing for a mission there, should he see his way to undertake it. During all the missions in Scotland and Ireland, as well as in the large manufacturing centres, the work had been fully reported in the Christian of London. Thousands of copies of this paper had been sent to the clergy of Great Britain, and the movement had been closely followed by the Christian public. Appreciating the benefit of such a medium, Mr. Moody wished to distribute the paper still more widely over England, and Mr. Matheson agreed to raise a fund of £2,000 to circulate the paper gratuitously for three months to 30,000 clergymen and nonconformist ministers all over England. The accounts which he gave of the remarkable movement in Scotland stimulated the desire for a similar work in London. While the evangelists were in Dublin, the final arrangement was made, and the central noon prayer meeting at Moorgate Street Hall, London, adopted the following resolution that, in accordance with the suggestion of Mr. Moody, it is hereby determined to arrange for special evangelistic work in London during four months of next year, namely March, April, May, and June, that a fund of not less than £10,000 be placed in the hand of the treasurer, and that men of distinguished evangelistic gifts heartily interested in the work be invited not only from other parts of England, but also from America, Scotland, and Ireland to assist in the movement. Four centres were selected for preaching places, Agricultural Hall at, at Islington in North London, seating 13,700 persons, with standing room for four or 5,000 more. Bow Road Hall in the extreme east, with 10,000 seatings. The Royal Opera Hall in the West End, in the aristocratic quarter of Westminster, and Victoria Theatre in the south, and later Camberwell Green Hall. The need for evangelistic services in London at that time may be gathered from statistics, which were published shortly before Mr. Moody went to the metropolis. The promoters of special services in theatres and music halls made the following statement concerning the city's need in the report of their 15th series of services. 117,000 habitual criminals are on its police register, increasing at an average of 30,000 per annum. More than one-third of all the crime in the country is committed in London. 23,000 persons live in its common lodging houses. Its many beer shops and gin palaces would, if placed side by side, stretch from Charing Cross to Portsmouth, a distance of 73 miles. 38,000 drunkards appear annually before its magistrates. It has as many paupers as would occupy every house in Brighton. It has upwards of a million habitual neglectors of public worship. It has 60 miles of shops open every Lord's Day. It has need of 900 new churches and chapels and 200 additional city missionaries. All through the months of January and February, extensive preparations were made for the intended meetings. No movement within the memory of those then living had so bound together the clergymen and Christian workers of various denominations. Had the meetings not been held, the preparations for them would, in themselves, have been a blessing. On Friday, February 5, 1875, 
Freemasons Hall in London was crowded with ministers and other Christian workers from all parts of London and its suburbs to confer with Moody in reference to the services soon to begin. There were nearly 2,000 persons present at one of the largest and most varied meetings of the ministerial order ever held for any purpose in England. Representative men from all evangelical churches were there, and there was besides a contingent from the ritualistic clergy who had scarcely been accepted. Prebendary Oral and Mr. Kiddo headed a strong phalanx of evangelical churchmen, Dr. Moffat, Dr. Stockton, Mr. Haney, Dr. Bevan, and Mr. Braden were among the congregational ministers who answered to the summons. The Venerable Charles Stovall was one of the many Baptists. The Presbytery sent a formidable array, among whom were Drs. Edmonds, Fraser, Dykes, Patterson, and Thane Davidson, while the various branches of the great Methodist body attended in great numbers. The chair was occupied by Mr. Stone of Blackheath, a London merchant. Mr. Moody made a brief statement. There was, he said, many obstacles to the proposed work in London, which could be put out of the way if they could only meet together and come to an understanding. He found some of the very best men kept out of the work because they heard this and that. Perhaps some things they heard were true and some not, and if they only had a fair and square understanding, he thought it would be helpful. He spoke frankly to his new friends, telling them that the great difficulty with which they had to contend was prejudice, and he urged the ministers to come into sympathy with the work at the beginning, and invited questions from every one. He spoke of the prejudice of some people against the inquiry room, and explained in detail the method, that those who were present might judge for themselves. A charge of undue excitement in the meetings had been made. This was erroneous. Very often, in a room with a hundred inquirers, one could hear scarcely a whisper. Concerning the sale of hymn-books, he said, A great deal has been said about our making a fine thing financially out of this movement from the sale of the hymn-books, organs, etc. Now I desire to say that up to the first day of January we received a royalty from the publishers of our hymn-books. But from that day, when the solo book was enlarged, we have determined not to receive anything from the sale, and have requested the publishers to hand over the royalties upon all our hymn-books, to one of your leading citizens, Mr. H. M. Matheson, who will devote the same to such charitable objects as may be decided upon. In regard to the organ question, I want to say once for all that we are not selling organs. That is not our mission, nor are we agents for the sale of organs, nor do we receive a commission or compensation in any way whatsoever from any person or persons for the organ that Mr. Sankey uses in our meetings. I hope now that no one here will think that I have made these statements to create a financial sympathy in our behalfs. We do not want your money. We want your confidence, and we want your sympathy and prayers. And as our one object in coming here is to preach Christ, we believe we shall have them, and that with God's blessing we shall see many brought into his fold. If we make mistakes, come and tell us. Then I shall not fear for the result. Many questions were asked Mr. Moody, and many misstatements corrected. One clergyman wished to know whether the work had the effect of estranging people from the communion. If so, he would not uphold the mission, out being false to his ordination vows and the Holy Ghost. Mr. Moody replied that his one object was to preach the gospel, a statement which was greeted with cheers. The next questioner wanted to know if it was true that a Roman Catholic took the chair at one of Mr. Moody's meetings in Ireland. Mr. Moody said that he was not responsible for the chairman, and added, amid laughter, that his meetings were attended by Jew, Greek, and barbarian. One clergyman asked Mr. Moody to print his creed before he came to London. My creed is in print, was the ready response. Where, was the general inquiry, as many people reached for their notebooks. In the fifty-third chapter of Isaiah was the reply. His answer was entirely satisfactory, and there was no further question as to Mr. Moody's orthodoxy. The opening meeting at Agricultural Hall was held on Tuesday evening, March 9th, and the noon meeting at Exeter Hall on the following day. 
The House-to-House -house Visitation Committee had been actively at work, and in the noon prayer meeting at Morgate Street Hall, there was a decided increase of interest and fervor. Prayer meetings had also been held in Agricultural Hall for a month, attended by more than a thousand people. The campaign was an unquestionable success from the outset. Many of the leading evangelical ministers and laymen of London were on the platform at the first service. The hall was quickly filled. Seats and standing room and thousands went away disappointed, though 17,000 people were crowded into the great hall. Mr. Moody won all the hearts in the very beginning by asking the vast audience to praise God for what he was going to do in London. He added that he had received dispatches from many cities in Great Britain, saying that the Christians were praying for London. And then he prayed with great fervor that a blessing might come upon that city, thanking God for the spirit of unity among the ministers, and praying that there might be no strife among them. In his address he expressed his early fear that if he should come to London, many people would be led to trust too much in the excitement of the great meetings, at the risk of having their eyes turned away from God. Those who would come expecting to hear a new gospel would be disappointed. He had the same old story to tell that the ministers whom he saw before him had preached and were preaching in their churches and chapels. Referring to the men, weak in the estimation of the world, whom God had used to do a great work for humanity, he said that it was not good preachers that were wanted in London, for probably at no time had the city possessed so many great preachers as then. The belief of every individual Christian should be, not that God can use me, but he will use me. What was wanted was that they should be out and out on the Lord's side, heart and brain on fire for him, ready to use every power and every opportunity for service. He also spoke of the necessity for proper unity in carrying on the work, and expressed a hope that ministers, Sabbath school superintendents, teachers, and parents would all be found working and praying for the success of the movement. The first Sunday afternoon the great hall was nearly filled with women, and in the evening it was crowded to its utmost capacity with men. In order to reach different classes of people, Mr. Moody began to repeat his afternoon service in the evening, in the hope that those who came to one service would stay away from the other to make room for different audiences. The noon meetings in Exeter Hall were crowded day after day, and reports of the work throughout the kingdom were received and many requests made for prayer. But the enthusiasm was not confined to Mr. Moody's meeting. At the East End Tabernacle, the Reverend Archibald G. Brown had the pleasure of seeing 2,000 members of his evening congregation remain to an after-meeting, and instead of the churches and chapels declining in interest as it was feared, they were filled as they had not been before. The best of the work was in the inquiry room, where earnest workers found plenty of scope for their zeal and more for their wisdom and tact. From the outset, attention was directed to Christians, Mr. Moody saying that he would rather wake up a slumbering church than a slumbering world, and that the man who does the most good in the world is not the man who works himself, but the man who sets others to work. He was able to help people more in a few minutes in the inquiry room than he could in a whole sermon. You've had enough of pulpit preaching, he said, and very good preaching, too. What we want now is hand-to-hand -hand work, personal effort, individuals going to people and pressing on them the claims of Christ. One woman, 85 years old, asked for a place in the house-to-house -house visitation. She said, I must do something. I'm getting old, but I will take a district. Only think of that was Mr. Moody's comment. This old lady, who has lived 15 years on borrowed time, has taken a district and started out. She went to one house where the people were Roman Catholics and wanted them to take leaflet announcing the meetings, but they pushed it away. Well, she said, if you won't read it, I will read it to you. And she did. Of course, they couldn't put out a woman 85 years old, said Mr. Moody. Nobody could think of doing that. It stirred me greatly. It ought to shame us all. Every young man and woman who is not at work ought to be ashamed. He concluded his address by calling for a thousand men and women who would join him in an effort to win one soul to Christ over the week. And in answer to his question who would join me, 
the greater part of the congregation stood up. It must not be supposed that Mr. Moody was entirely free from criticism. The infidel in the street and an occasional editor in his office vented his spite against religion by attacking those who came to proclaim it. As the crowds gathered for the opening service, false handbills were distributed, pretending to describe the sermon that was about to be delivered. The vanity fair outside the great hall in the evening has been described by an eyewitness. Many policemen to keep the way, multitudes of young men full of fun and joking, multitudes also of evil women and girls gaily dressed, joining in, the two together forming a mass of well-dressed but disreputable black guardianism, proving to demonstration that the American evangelists have come at last exactly where they were sorely needed. Omnibus men, cabmen, tramcar men, board, and loafers of every description took part in universal carnival. Oaths, jests, slang, and mockery were all let loose together, but not one serious face, not one thoughtful countenance, not an idea of God's judgment or of eternity in all the vast changing multitude outside. After the service inside had ended, and partly during its continuance, detachments of choirs belonging to the neighboring missions had stationed themselves near the hall, and occupied themselves in singing the songs and solos, and delivering addresses of the briefest character. But all seemed in vain. The very spirit of mockery seems to possess the great majority. There is nothing like spiteful opposition, much less of interference. The singers and speakers were merely regarded as amiable enthusiasts, who had rashly delivered themselves to the merciless mockery of a London mob. The mob was not the only form of opposition. The Saturday Review expressed surprise that so many persons go to hear the Americans. As for Moody, he is simply a ranter of the most vulgar type. His mission appears to be to degrade religion to the level of the penny gaff. The New York Times at that time was nearly as strong in its opposition to the evangelist. In its issue of June 22, 1875, in an editorial column, this statement occurred. We are credibly informed that Mr. Moody and Sankey were sent to England by Mr. Barnum as a matter of speculation. The London Society papers devoted a great deal of attention to Mr. Moody on this visit. Caricatures of him and Mr. Sankey appeared in Vanity Fair. The tone of the articles and paragraphs describing the meetings were at first contemptuous, but as eminent leaders of society began to attend, it became more sympathetic and respectful. Mr. Moody, says one writer, is a heavy-looking individual with a nasal twang and a large fund of English ears, slightly irreverent antidotes. Curious reports of Mr. Moody's provincial tour went before him to London. The world said, in many large English towns, they, the evangelists, had the satisfaction of throwing females into convulsions, and had been lucky enough to consign several harmless idiots to the neighboring lunatic asylum. Those who attended the meetings bore testimony that this element of violent excitement was totally absent from them. A penny biography of Mr. Moody sold widely in the London streets that spring. Everything that could be done to counteract his influence and prejudice the public against him was attempted by certain papers. Londoners were told that, judging by the low standard of an American ranter, Mr. Moody is a third-rate star. His reading of scripture was severely blamed. Mr. Moody, with a jocular familiarity which painfully jarred on our sense of the reverential, translated freely passages of the Bible into the American vernacular. The grand, simple stories of Holy Writ were thus parodied. But in spite of all the hostility of the press, it soon became manifest, not only that the common people heard him gladly, but that society itself was moved and deeply impressed by his preaching. One of the first to attend the meeting was Lord Carnes, then Lord Chancellor in Mr. Disraeli's government. He occupied a prominent seat in Agricultural Hall, Islington. Very soon, nearly all the leaders of the society had followed his example. The epithets pernicious humbugs, crack-brained Yankee evangelist, pestilent vermin, abbots of unreason, with which the anti-Christian press pelted the preachers, gave way to much more polite language from the highest in the land were numbered among their hearers. 
The London papers had asserted that Moody and Sankey were financially interested in the sale of the cheap photographs sold on the streets, although these were uniformly little more than caricatures. A photographer in one of the largest provincial towns seeing these criticisms wrote a letter to the Times stating that he had offered Moody and Sankey £1,000, about $5,000, if they would sit for a photograph and allow him to copyright it, but that the offer was refused. The publication of this letter had a remarkable effect in establishing confidence. In striking contrast with this flippant attitude was a leading article in the London Times, which referred pleasantly to Mr. Sankey's singing, and then added, But people would not come together for weeks merely to hear expressive singing, nor yet to yield to the impulse of association. They come to hear Mr. Moody, and the main question is, what had he to say? Is any Christian church in this metropolis in a position to say that it can afford to dispense with any vigorous effort to rouse the mass of people to a more Christian life? The congregations which are to be seen in our churches and chapels are but a fraction of the hundreds and thousands around them, of whom multitudes are living but a little better than a mere animal existence. If any considerable proportion of them can be aroused to the mere desire for something higher, an immense step is gained. If the churches are really a higher influence still, Mr. Moody will at least have prepared them better material to work on. A striking incident connected with this campaign was the publication of a letter written by the Archbishop of Canterbury to a friend, in which he said he took the deepest interest in the Moody and Sankey movement, and that, having found an opportunity for consulting some of his Episcopal friends on the subject, his own view was very much strengthened by what he heard from them. That the great truth of the gospel should be urged on the people's conscience was no innovation, and he heartily rejoiced that the movement was conducted on so great a scale and with such apparent success. At the same time, he made it clear that he did not officially sanction the work. Many of our clergy, as you are aware, he wrote, have been present at the meetings in question, and those who have stood aloof have not done so from any want of interest, but because they have felt that, greatly as they rejoiced that simple gospel truths were urged on their people's consciences, there were circumstances attending the movement to which they could not consistently give their approval. If there is a difficulty in the clergy's giving their official sanction to the work, you will at once see that in the case of the bishops, there are greater difficulties in the way of any direct sanction, which, coming from them, could not but be regarded as official and authoritative. And I confess that the objections I originally felt still remain in full force now that we have had time to examine and to learn from various quarters the exact nature of the movement. But looking to the vast field that lies before us, and the overwhelming difficulties of contending with the mass of positive sin and careless indifference which resist on all sides the progress of the gospel, I, for my part, rejoice that whether regularly or irregularly, whether according to the divine scriptural and perfect way or imperfectly, with certain admixtures of human error, crisis preach, and sleeping consciences are aroused. The inquiry meetings in connection with the agricultural hall services were held in St. Mary's Hall, a large concert room. Mr. Moody divided the inquirers, leaving the women in the basement and sending the men into the gallery, and directed the workers to divide in the same way. All around the gallery were men in twos and threes, to the number of two or three hundred, every couple or three separated from their neighbors and earnestly engaged in their own work, without taking any notice of those near and around. Here, for instance, was a couple discussing a difficulty in the way, there another couple earnestly reading passages of God's word. Next was one pleading with another. Here a worker was praying for the light to come, there another, pressing the inquirer to pray for himself, and others praying earnestly together. Bow Road Hall in the east end of London was the second place of meeting. It was patterned somewhat after Bingley Hall in Birmingham. An American spending a few weeks in London at the time sent this description of the building and one of the meetings in it to a home paper. The Bow Road Hall is a frame building, sheathed with corrugated iron, which was erected for these meetings in the east end of London. 
It is an easy reach of a vice-infested, poverty-stricken district, which Mr. Moody thinks comes nearer hell than any other place on earth. A thick carpeting of sawdust, laid upon the ground, forms the floor. It is seated with cane-bottomed chairs, of which, I am told, it holds over 9,000. Scripture texts in white letters, two feet tall, on a background of red flannel, stretch along the several walls. A choir of 100 young men and women occupies a part of the platform. The preaching begins at 8 o'clock. At half-past seven, every chair in the room is filled. Latecomers who cannot be packed upon the platform or find standing room out of range of those who are seated are turned away by the policemen at the entrances. The choir fills with hymns familiar to American Sunday schools and prayer meetings. Sweet hour of prayer, when he cometh, come to the Savior, but mostly unknown here until Mr. Sankey sang them into notice and favor. A Christian cannot look into the faces of the serious, hushed, expectant audience of eight or ten thousand people without being deeply moved by the thought of the issues that may hang on this hour. Many of them seem to belong to the class of shopkeepers and thrifty, working people, but here and there a diamond flashes its light from richer people, while some of the faces evidently belong to the very lowest classes. Hundreds, if not thousands of them, have come from every quarter of the city, from five or ten miles away. They sit so closely packed that the men wear their hats. Ushers carrying their tall rods of office are thickly scattered along the entrances and aisles. In a great tent at the rear are prayer meetings going on for the blessing of God on the evening service. Promptly at eight, Mr. Moody steps out and plants both hands on the rails that run along the front of the platform and forms his pulpit. He has grown stout since leaving America and wears a flowing beard, but there is no mistaking the man as soon as he opens his mouth. He sees too many people, he says, whose faces are getting familiar at these meetings. It's time for Christians to stop coming here and crowding into the best seats. It's time for him to go out among these sailors and drunkards and bring them in and give them the best seats. Mr. Sankey sits at his cabinet organ close by at the kiths or whistles which so scandalized some of the good Scottish brethren last year. And Mr. Moody calls on him to sing, Jesus of Nazareth passes by. It is plain enough, before the first verse is finished, that this movement owes much of its success to Mr. Sankey. He has a voice of unequaled clearness and power, which sounds to the hall like a trumpet. Each word is articulated with great distinctness, and there is a soul in the scene that is something more and higher than mere art. The hymn tells at once, as any one can see by the intent eyes that are everywhere focused on the singer. A prayer by Mr. Moody, brief, fervent, and Mr. Moody sings, there were ninety and nine, with great effect. Mr. Moody, Mr. Moody, aptly turning the Whit Sunday commemoration of the day of Pentecost to account, reads a part of Peter's address on that occasion, and announces that he proposed to take the same topic and text, the crucified Christ. The sermon that followed is simply the story of the closing scenes in the Savior's life, beginning with the gathering of the little company of thirteen at the Last Supper. It is told in the photographic way of one who has studied it so intently that the whole scene stands out in clear detail and intensely real before him and he makes it seem very real and present to his audience. There are moodyish touches to the picture here and there that are very characteristic and effective. Judas made great professions. He got near enough to the Son of God to kiss him, but he went down to perdition. His words tumbled over each other in the haste of his utterance. He has a surprising faculty for such grammatical mistakes and illiteracies as the Spirit done it. Taint no use. Get right up. He came to him, etc. But these minor blemishes sink out of notice in the tremendous earnestness with which he speaks. That is the preeminent characteristic of the discourse. The noiseless, rapt attention of the vast congregation is wonderful. Hundreds are in tears. In the very midst of one discourse, and the height of its interest, two or three quickly succeeding shrieks come from the center of the audience. 
Mr. Moody stopped as if at signal, and then, with Sheridan-like promptness, said, "'Well, stand up and sing Rock of Ages, Clef for Me,' and the ushers will please help that friend out of the hall. She's hysterical. There was no more hysterical demonstrations during the evening, and the congregation scarcely realized that there had been any interruption in the service. At the close of the address, which was something less than an hour long, those who wished to become Christians were invited to stand up, and several hundred arose. While they remained standing, all Christians present were asked to rise. Apparently not a tenth of the audience kept their seats under both invitations. The congregation was then dismissed, but with an urgent request to stay in the second meeting, for conversation and prayer with inquirers. Many remained, perhaps twelve or fifteen hundred, but much of the larger part were Christians. As there were opportunity and occasion, they scattered about the hall, talking and praying with those who had asked for prayers. The interest in this second meeting did not, however, seem to match that of the preaching service, but it would be manifestly unfair to measure the influence of the latter by such a test. It was as well calculated to quicken the Christian as to awaken the impenitent, to set them at work elsewhere, and everywhere, as in Bow Road Hall. It was spoken of at the noon prayer meeting the next day as the best so far of the London meetings. Nothing is clearer than that London has been remarkably stirred by the labors of these two evangelists. The windows of every print store are hung with their pictures. Penny editions of Mr. Sankey's songs are hawked about the streets. The stages and the railway stations are placarded to catch the travelers of their meetings. The papers report their services with a fullness never dreamed of before in reporting religious meetings. Yet it is doubtful whether, with services held almost every day since about the 1st of March, 5% of the people of this great city have ever heard them, or 15% ever heard of them. While Mr. Moody was reaching the tenement house population and the crowded East End, he was also holding services in the fashionable West End. The Royal Opera House was secured, and in addition to the noon prayer meeting and a Bible lecture in the afternoon, he preached twice every evening except Saturday, being driven rapidly from the Opera House to Bow Road Hall. One Sunday he arranged to preach four times. Ignorant of the distances, he was obliged to walk sixteen miles, besides delivering the sermons, as he could not use a public conveyance on Sunday. I walked it, he announced later, when preaching on the fourth commandment, and I slept that night with a clear conscience. I have made it a rule never to use the cars, and if I have a private carriage, I insist that horse and man should rest on Monday. I want no hackman to rise up in judgment against me. In a later visit to Scotland, a committee went to a livery stable keeper, without Mr. Moody's knowledge, to secure a carriage to take him to a distant meeting on the following Sunday. It will hurt him less to walk, said the owner of a thousand horses, than to drive in horse and carriage four miles through the decollage. Mr. Moody was greatly pleased with the reply and often repeated the incident, remarking that he wished more employers were as careful of the interests of their men as well as their animals. Among those who attended London meetings was Mr. Gladstone, who entered heartily into the service. At the close of the meeting, Mr. Moody was presented to him. The conversation was characteristic in its abruptness, and in reply to an inquiry as to its nature, Mr. Moody said, Oh, he said he wished he had my shoulders, and I said I wished I had his head on them. Although Mr. Moody was utterly indifferent to rank and title as such, his influence was no less effective on the higher educated and socially eminent. Lord Shaftesbury thanked God publicly that Mr. Moody had not been educated at Oxford, for he had a wonderful power of getting at the hearts of men, and while the common people heard him gladly, many persons of high station had been greatly struck with the marvellous simplicity and power of his preaching. Lord Shaftesbury added that the Lord Chancellor of England a short time before had said to him, The simplicity of that man's preaching clear manner in which he sets forth salvation by Christ, is to me the most striking and the most delightful thing I ever knew in my life. Mr. Moody received no more hearty support from anyone in London than that given by the Reverend Charles H. Spurgeon. Addressing his own audience, Mr. Spurgeon said that some of my hearers have probably been converted under the influence of the services conducted by my dear friends Moody and Sankey at Agricultural Hall. 
he implored them, if they professed to have found Christ, not to make a shame of it, and said that their salvation, if it was worth anything, should be a salvation from sin. Salvation from hell was not the salvation they ought to cry after, but salvation from the sin, and that would bring salvation from hell. A thief might want to get salvation from going to prison, but the only salvation from him that was worth anything was salvation from thieving. One of the most enthusiastic services, and in many respects one of the best, was held in Spurgeon's tabernacle. It was designed for the benefit of the students of Mr. Spurgeon's college and the Baptist ministers in town for the April anniversaries, but the scope of the meeting was widened and tickets were issued to the Sunday congregation. In his address, Mr. Moody was dwelling on the passage, prepared unto every good work. And he said, I wonder how many of you would rise if I should ask every man and woman to do so who is ready to go and speak to some anxious soul. I wonder how many would rise and say, I am ready for one. He paused. Someone behind me says, try it. But I am rather afraid. He paused again. Well, suppose we do try it. How many of you are ready to go and talk to some soul? The students and ministers on either side of the platform at once rose in a body, and their example is quickly followed by members throughout the congregation. Equal to the occasion, Mr. Moody says, Well, now you have risen. I want to tell you that the Lord is ready to send you. Nothing will wake up London quicker than to have the Christians going out and speaking to the people. The time has come when it should be done. You have been on the defensive too long. The Life of D.L. Moody Chapter 22 the London Campaign Continued At the opening of the mission in Camberwell Green Hall, Mr. Moody received the valuable assistance of Rev. W. H. M. Hay Aitken and Rev. Charles H. Spurgeon. Special children's services were begun here, and the exercise was adopted to their needs and taste. On one occasion, between six and 7,000 children from the various charitable institutions of London gathered to hear Mr. Moody's antidotes, to answer, as they readily did, the simple questions, and to listen with delight to Mr. Sankey's beautiful hymns. From Shoeblack's Homes, Doorstep Brigades, Newsboys Societies, Boys and Girls Refuges, Industrial Schools, Schools for the Blind and for Cripples, and Homes for Orphans, the waifs and strays came trooping up to swell the host. Forty-seven such Christian nurseries sent their contingents, and as the entire army rose to sing Hold the Fort, the sight was most touching and beautiful. The uniforms of the several brigades, the costumes of the girls, varying from bright scarlet to black, came out most effectively, and their singing was well worth walking miles to hear. The galleries and spare floor space were filled with parents and friends of the boys and girls, with an extensive intersprinkling of children who enjoyed the treat as much as their most favored contemporaries in the body of the hall. Among Mr. Moody's most valued assistants and closest friends, men who gave him the most valuable aid at this time and never lost their warm associations with him during his life, were Dr. Andrew Bonner of Glasgow and Harry Drummond. The London meeting was thus described by Drummond in a letter to his father. Everything is bright outside and inside, and I only wish you were here to share the enjoyment. How would you like to see an acre of people? That is exactly the size of the audience to which Mr. Moody preaches every night in the east of London. Here is his program. A three-miles drive to noon meeting, lunch, Bible reading at 3.30, followed by inquiry meeting till at least five. Then five miles drive to East End to preach to 12,000 at 8.30. Then inquiry meeting, five or six miles drive home. That is every day this week and next. A terrible strain, which, however, he never seems to feel for a moment. The work is coming out grandly now, and I think the next two months will witness wonderful results. It is deepening on every side, and even London is beginning to be moved. Mr. Moody said Sunday was the best day of his life. 
following extract from Dr. Andrew Bonner's diary at this time is also of special interest. Have been with Moody again in London. Immense crowds, wonderful sight, and more wonderful impression. Had time today for prayer. Saw how simple confidence in Christ has helped me very often in the past, and sought to be able to have this always as well as often. There is great talk about higher life and much movement in that direction, and though there is error mingled, this may be the Lord's way of answering the prayers which some of us have sent up, asking in our lives more likeness to Christ. At Camberwell Hall not less than nine thousand assembled, morning, noon, and night. In the morning before eight o'clock I was summoned away to the overflow in the neighboring church. But the most remarkable part of the day was our Bible reading with Mr. Moody in the forenoon. About thirty Christian friends present. We were like Acts 20, verse 7, talking for two hours and then dispensing the Lord's Supper. Mr. Moody closed with prayer. Most solemn scene, never to be forgotten. The last of Moody's meetings here, an assembly of ministers and friends at mild May, I thought upon Revelation 7, 1-3. John Wanamaker of Philadelphia presided at a noon meeting, and spoke of the deep interest that was felt in America in the great religious movement going on in London. One afternoon about three thousand children, with a thousand adults, came together, when Henry Drummond presided and gave a delightful address, which was well suited to the young audience. During the mission in London a number of conventions were held, notable among which was a convention for young men, held one evening at Mr. Moody's request. The special attraction was the presence of three presidents of Young Men's Christian Association America. Henry Drummond read a part of the Sermon on the Mount. Mr. Moody gave a sketch of the origin and progress of the association movement in Great Britain and America, and then called upon William E. Dodge, president of the Young Men's Christian Association New York, to speak. He was followed by John V. Farwell, the president of the association in Chicago, and John Wanamaker, the president of the Philadelphia Association. Professor Drummond conducted the meeting for young men, bringing with him a large and varied experience. Besides being especially gifted with many qualifications for this special work, he ruled the meeting with a firm and yet gentle hand, and possessed a happy knack of putting everyone at his ease, and making him feel that he was one of a circle of friends met for the common welfare. Another convention was held the following week in the Haymarket Theatre, in which reports of the work in the various parts of Great Britain were presented. A question of the unchurched masses and other practical topics occupied one day. Sunday schools, the inquiry room, and work for young men was taken up on the second day. As the end of the series of meetings approached, still another conference was held, this time with the house-to-house -house visitors and superintendents, and later a meeting of ministers of the gospel for praise and thanksgiving before Mr. Moody returned to America. The last week that Moody and Sankey were in London, they received an invitation to hold a services on grounds adjacent to Eton College so those boys who were anxious to attend it might have an opportunity of doing so. There were upwards of 900 boys at this well-known school, almost under the shadow of the royal palace at Windsor. Notwithstanding his already overfilled time, Mr. Moody accepted the invitation, and arrangements were made for a meeting in a tent erected outside the college grounds. The headmaster of Eton, who had absolute jurisdiction in such matters, agreed to not put any obstacle in the way of the boys attending. Just before the meeting was to be held, Mr. Natchbull Huggison, a member of Parliament, took steps to prevent the meeting, and published a correspondence of his with the provost of the college. No little excitement was caused by this unexpected turn of affairs, and the matter was discussed in the House of Lords. Mr. Moody, with those who had arranged for the meeting, saw no reason to change their plans, and went to Windsor shortly after noon on Tuesday. When they reached there, they found that they could not meet in the tent, and tried to secure the use of the town hall, but were disappointed in this also. Mr. Cayley, a leading townsman of Windsor, generously offered the use of his garden, and this offer was accepted. 
Shortly after three o'clock, some 200 Eaton boys appeared, and when the meeting proper began, the garden was well filled, and a standing audience of about a thousand. After the singing of the hundredth psalm and a prayer by Lord Cappen, Mr. Moody, standing upon a chair under the shade of a large chestnut tree, surrounded by attentive groups of Eaton boys, delivered an address, in which he dwelt with his usual earnestness on the value of the gospel, which, he said, had removed from his path the bitterest enemies with which he ever had to contend, the fear of death, judgment, and sin. Mr. Moody departed little, if at all, in his discourse from his usual line of argument, exhortation, and illustration. He expressed the hope that as many of them might occupy in the future high positions in the state, they should do their uttermost, by the early cultivation of Christian virtue, to qualify themselves to fill these positions worthily, and to merit the glorious hereafter which was promised to those who conform to the will of God. At the closing service in London, Mr. Moody said, For two years and three weeks we have been trying to labor for Christ among you, and now it is time to close. This is the last time I shall have the privilege of preaching the gospel in this country at this time. I want to say that these have been the best years of my life. I have sought to bring Christ before you and to tell you of his beauty. It is true I have done it with stammering tongue. I have never spoken of him as I would like to. I have done the best I could, and at this closing hour I want once more to press him upon your acceptance. I do not want to close this meeting until I see you all in the Ark of Refuge. How many are willing to stand up before God tonight and say by that act that they will join us in our journey to heaven? You that are willing to take Christ now, will you not rise? Many rose to their feet and would let in prayer by Mr. Moody, who besought the power of the Holy Ghost to fall equally upon those who had risen and upon those who had not, and with a closing hymn, safe in the arms of Jesus, the work of the evangelist for that campaign was at an end. A farewell and Thanksgiving meeting was held the next day, July 12th, at Mild May Conference Hall. The hall was crowded with ministers and laymen, the three galleries containing many ladies. Of the ministers present at this memorable meeting, there were 188 belonging to the Church of England, 154 Congregationalists, 85 Baptists, 81 Wesleyan Methodist, 39 Presbyterian, 8 Foreign Pastors, 8 United Methodist, 7 Primitive Methodist, 3 Plymouth Brethren, Two Countess of Huntingdon's Connection, two Society of Friends, three Free Church of England, one Bible Christian, and upward of twenty whose denominational connections were not discovered. These figures were taken from the official statements supplied at the meeting, and show the Catholic and unsectarian character of the services, as well as the universal esteem with which the evangelists were regarded by all sections of the Church of Christ in Great Britain. Mr. Moody said they were meet to give thanks to God and not to honor men, and he very emphatically requested that nothing should be said about the human instruments of the mission's success. Dr. Andrew A. Bonner of Glasgow gave an interesting address, and the Rev. Archibald Brown, Dr. Donald Fraser, the Rev. Marcus Rainsford, Rev. W. H. M. H. Aitken, Henry Valerie, Lord Shaftesbury, and others spoke. It would be remembered that Lord Shaftesbury was the noble earl who presided at the first meeting which Mr. Moody attended in London in 1867, and to whom he declined to move a vote of thanks, saying that there was no more reason for doing so than for thanking the audience. Nothing but the positive command of Mr. Moody, he said, could have induced me to come forward on the present occasion, and to say but a very few words in the presence of so many ministers of the gospel. But as Mr. Moody has asked me to speak of what occurred during the past four months, I do so with the deepest sense of gratitude to Almighty God that he has raised up a man with such a message, be delivered in such a manner. Although Mr. Moody has forbidden us to praise him and his friend, yet if we praise God for sending us such men, 
we do no more than express our admiration for the instruments he has raised up, while we give him all the glory. I have been conversant for many years with the people of Metropolis, and I might say that wherever I go I find the traces of the work, of the impression that has been made, of the feeling that has been produced, which I hope will be indelible. Only a few days ago I received a letter from a friend, a man whose whole life is given among the most wretched and most abandoned of the populous city of Manchester, who speaks of the good that has been effected there by Mr. Moody and Mr. Sankey. A correspondent in Sheffield has also written that he could not begin to satisfy the wants of the people, that they are calling for tracts and anything else to keep the religious feeling that has been aroused. He says, for God's sake, send me tracts by thousands and millions. Even if Mr. Moody and Sankey have done nothing more than to teach the people to sing such hymns as hold the fort for I am coming, they would have conferred an inestimable blessing on Great Britain. During the four months of the London Mission, the work accomplished is shown by the following statistics. In Camberwell Hall, 60 meetings attended by 480,000 people. In Victoria Hall, 45 meetings attended by 400,000. In the Royal Haymarket Opera House, 60 meetings attended by 330,000. In Bow Road Hall, 60 meetings attended by 600,000. In Agricultural Hall, 60 meetings attended by 720,000. In all, 285 meetings attended by 2,530,000 people. The mission cost £28,396, nearly all of which was subscribed before the close of the meeting. After leaving London, Mr. Moody went for a short rest with the Reverend Mr. Aitken and Mr. Belfour of Liverpool, to the country residence of the latter Bala Wales, for here he was not allowed complete rest, as he was called upon to give three gospel addresses and several Bible readings during his short vacation. As he had to pass through Liverpool to sail for America, he was urged to conduct two or three more services in this city before leaving the country. And on August 3rd, Christian conference was held in Victoria Hall, and in the evening a farewell meeting. In addition to Mr. Moody's sermon, addresses were made by clergymen and Christian workers, including Henry Drummond and James Stalker of Edinburgh. Mr. Moody spoke again in the evening to the young men. The last service held in England by Mr. Moody was on the morning of his departure. The doors were open at seven o'clock, and when he rose to speak, there were between five and six thousand people present. He presented the watchword he had given the day before, advance. He then offered to shake hands with all the people present, in the person of the president of the association. Mr. Moody left England August 14th, and on his arrival in New York, he was greeted by many friends, including Mr. D.W. McWilliams, William E. Dodge, Jr., George H. Stewart, J. V. Farwell. Some of the direct results of this English tour, covering more than two years, have been summarized by one writer as follows. A spirit of evangelism was awakened that has never died away. A large number of city missions and other active organizations were established. Denominational differences were buried to a remarkable extent. The clergymen of all denominations were drawn into cooperation on a common platform, the salvation of the lost. Bibles were reopened, and Bible study received a wonderful revival. Long-standing prejudices were swept away. New life was infused into all methods of Christian activity. An impetus was given to the cause of temperance such as had not been experienced in Great Britain before. No attempt was made to proselyze, but converts were passed over to existing churches for nurture and admonition of the things of the Lord. Since Mr. Moody made his way across the ocean 23 years ago, wrote a prominent Scottish minister in 1896, an American preacher has been a welcome visitor here. With reference to this work, the late Reverend Dr. Philip Schaefer of New York made the following remarks in an address in London some years ago. One of the most interesting and remarkable facts in the history of these days is the wonderful effect produced among you by the efforts of two laymen from America. 
it was a greater marvel to us than to you, and the only way to account for it is to refer at once to the grace of God. Such a movement the world has not seen since the days of Whitfield and Wesley, and it is much wider in its results than the work of these two honored men. It is more unsectarian in its character, and I may add, the most unselfish movement known in our common history. It was for the purpose of winning souls to Christ, and of extending his kingdom, without regard to denominational boundaries, that these two men came to England, and every church may reap the benefit. We, in America, had no idea these two men could have produced such a commotion among you, but it is just the old, old story of the simple fisherman of Galilee over again. Subsequently, he said of his countrymen, they approve the power of elementary truths over the hearts of men more heartily, more mightily than all the learned professors and eloquent pastors of England could do. As the Methodist revival more than a hundred years ago stopped the progress of deism, so these plain laymen from America turned the tide of modern materialism and atheism. It is the grace of God behind these men which explains the extraordinary religious interest they have awakened all over Scotland and England. The farewell service given to the American evangelist on the 12th of July in London furnished abundant testimony to the fruits of the labors from the mouths of ministers and laymen of all denominations. It was a meeting which will not be easily forgotten. The Life of D.L. Moody, Chapter 23, Return to America The reports of the deep religious awakening in Great Britain had preceded Mr. Moody to America, so that on his return he was as well known there as in Great Britain. A little over two years before he had left his country, known only to a comparatively small circle of Sunday school workers and young men's Christian Association friends. In Chicago, his name was more prominent than elsewhere, but to the general public, his work was not familiar. It may be said, then, that Mr. Moody was introduced to America by Great Britain, as he, in turn, is said to have introduced several Englishmen to their own country. Immediately on his return, he received many invitations to visit the leading cities in America. In some cases, these were sent to him before he left London. In several places, committees had been formed to arrange for a series of meetings, which he was asked to conduct. It must have been most gratifying, as well as flattering, to find at once such a widespread expression of appreciation. But with a characteristic spirit of humility, he turned aside from all these invitations, ostensibly to rest, but in reality to study and to wait upon God for guidance as to his future plans. On arriving in New York, Mr. Moody, with his family, went directly to Northfield to spend several weeks with his aged mother. Here he gave much time to a careful preparation for the work of the coming winter. Mornings were devoted to reading and the preparation of dresses, as he had had little opportunity during the busy months abroad to acquire new material. It was at this time that he purchased the small farm, which later became his home. A barren little tract of twelve acres near his mother's place was offered for sale at this time at a moderate price, and Mr. Moody bought this, purposing to hold the land for his mother and to spend a few summers there for the sake of his children. For several summers he retreated to the quiet seclusion of this country home, where he could study and prepare for the arduous missions during the winter months. Gradually his interest in Northfield increased, until the home he planned for rest and quiet became the scene of his greatest activities and most lasting work. Soon after arriving at Northfield, he was again besieged with the most cordial and urgent invitations to visit different American cities. Among others was one from Washington, brought by the Reverend Dr. John P. Newman, who was delegated by the pastors of that city to go to Northfield and secure a positive answer to the question, Will you conduct campaign in Washington this fall? Dr. Newman found Mr. Moody busily engaged in farm duties. He listened attentively to the distinguished preacher, later a bishop of the Methodist Episcopal Church, but he was not prepared to give a definite answer. I don't know yet where the first meeting will be held. I'm waiting to see where I'm led. This was all he could be induced to say. 
Dr. Kyler of Brooklyn, who visited Northfield, to hear from Mr. Moody's own lips the thrilling story of what God had wrought in Great Britain. The two friends talked frankly of the meetings abroad, and of those soon to begin in America. At the farmhouse table of his venerated mother, writes Dr. Kyler, he related some of his experiences. When I asked him who had helped him most, he replied, Dr. Andrew A. Bonner and Lord Carnes. The first one helped me by inspiring hints of the Bible truth for my sermons, the other one by coming often to hear me, for the people said that if the Lord Chancellor came to my meetings, they had better come too. He might have added, if his characteristic modesty had allowed, that Carnes had said that he gave him a new conception of preaching. The next morning, Moody told me that he had but a few educational advantages in his boyhood, but he was thinking of starting a school of a decided Christian character for boys and girls in Northfield. And lo, into what a godly tree has that seed thought grown, and how God has watered it. Many other reminiscences crowd upon me, but I restrain my pen, for if all his friends should tell all they know, a volume would swell into a library. Of one thing I felt sure, and that is, if another book of the Acts of Christ faithful apostles were to be written, probably the largest space in the record of the 19th century would be given to the soul-saving work of Charles H. Spurgeon and Dwight L. Moody. Another visitor who gave and received a great blessing was Major Whittle, his former associate and lifelong fellow worker. Several years before, while walking home from a meeting in his tabernacle in Chicago, stopping near a lamppost where their ways were to part, Mr. Moody opened his Bible to Second Timothy 4, and in reply to something his friend had said as to what could be done to arouse the people, read, Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine, adding, This is our commission, Whittle. Nothing more was said then, but there came to his friend the conviction, which never from that time left him, that God might call him to some form of gospel work. As I look back now, writes Major Whittle, it was a wonderful manifestation of the presence of the Spirit of God, and I bless him for his goodness in sending the call through Mr. Moody to me. The following extract from Major Whittle's diary of September 1875 gives a picture of the daily life at Northfield during the preparation for the first gospel campaign in this country. Bliss and myself received a letter from dear Moody to come at once to Northfield, Massachusetts, and to confer with him about the work of the coming winter. We left Chicago together Monday evening, September 6th. Arrived at South Vern, Wednesday noon. Dear Moody was at the station with the carriage to meet us, and received us with much joy. Over two years ago, we departed with him in Chicago. Since that time, he has been used to rouse the Christian world, to lead thousands of souls to Christ, and to stimulate scores, as he did in the cases of Bliss and myself, to go out into the vineyard. I love him, and reverence him as I do no other man on earth. To me, he has seen for years a man full of the Holy Ghost. The only change I see in him now is a growth of conscious power and an ability for speaking with added weight and deeper conviction. He is wholly and thoroughly conscious that it is all of God. Praying alone with him, I found him humble as a child before God. Out in the work with him, I found him bold as a lion before men. No hesitation, no shrinking, no timidity. Speaking with authority, speaking as an ambassador for the Most High God. Two weeks we passed in this beautiful mountain home of our brother. We met his widowed mother, his three brothers, his wife, and children. We were made part of the family, and taken over all the haunts of Moody's boyhood, of the mountain where he used to pasture the cows and pick berries and gather chestnuts, and where he passed the last Sunday alone with God before he sailed for England upon his last memorable visit. We went with him to take dinner with his uncle Cyrus over the Connecticut River. And as we passed the beautiful stream, the valleys sloping down on either side, and the blue hills and mountains beyond, Bliss and Sankey sang together, only waiting for the boatman, and there is a land of pure delight. Moody was helping the ferryman. We all thought the crossing very slow. After the third or fourth song, Sankey looked around and discovered Moody holding on to the wire and pulling back while the ferryman pulled forward. 
his object being to get in a good many songs, not only for his own enjoyment, but for the good of the ferryman, a boyhood friend for whose conversion he was interested. Moody greatly enjoyed Sankey's discomfiture, and after a hearty laugh from us all, we joined in the song, Pull for the Shore, and by keeping a watch on Moody, reached the shore as we closed. One beautiful day we left luncheon in baskets, and driving out four or five miles, climbed the highest of the hills and had a picnic on its top. We could see for miles, up and down the Connecticut Valley. The village of Northfield was at our feet, Battleboro just at the north, and all around us, grand old granite mountains. Mount Manadoc, the largest of these, was at our right as we faced the valley. Upon this mountain, Moody asked which of the mountains of the Bible was dearest to us. His was the mountain in Galilee, where Christ met the disciples after he had risen, Matthew 28:16. Bliss and Sankey both chose the Mount of Transfiguration, Samuel Moody, the mount where Christ preached his sermon, George Davis Calvary, my own choice, all of it. We had a precious season of prayer upon this mount, and asked for prayer for the work before us, and praising the same Lord for meeting us here, who met his disciples in Galilee. I spent the rest of the day with Moody, driving up the valley to Warwick, a most beautiful ride, and back to Northfield. Moody told me much of his experience in Great Britain. I asked him if he was never overcome by nervousness and timidity because of the position in which he stood. He said no, that God carried him right along as the work grew. He had no doubt that, had he known when he reached England what was before him, he would have been frightened. But as he looked back, all he could think of was Jeremiah's experience, that God gave him a forehead of brass to go before the people. He had had such a consciousness of the presence of God in his meetings in London that the people, lords, bishops, ministers, or whoever they were, were as grasshoppers. It troubled him somewhat in going to London that his sermons and Bible talks would all be reported, and his entire stock, the same that he had used in other places, would thus be exhausted. But as he expressed it, there was no help for it. So I just shut my eyes and went ahead, leaving it with God. He told me he spent but comparatively little time in secret prayer, and had no experience of being weighed down and burdened before God. He did not try to get into the state. His work kept him in the spirit of prayer and dependence upon God, and he just gave himself wholly to the work. For a year or more before he left Chicago, he was continually burdened and crying to God for more power. Then he was always wanting to get a few people together for a half day of prayer, and would groan and weep before God for the baptism of the Spirit. He did not seem to be in this state now. I wanted such a season while with him, feeling my own need, but he was as one who had passed through that experience, and had just put himself holding God's hands, received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and was being led in all things by him. His prayers while I was with him were as simple as a child's, full of trust, humility, and expectation that God would not disappoint him. There seemed to me an understanding established between the servant and the master, which made long prayers or the importunity of repetition unnecessary. During our stay with Moody, services were held in the congregational church each night, with very blessed results. The whole population attended, and hundreds came from surrounding towns. Dear Moody's mother and two brothers, connected with the Unitarian Church, were much blessed. I shall always thank God for the blessed experience of these two weeks. Many brethren from different parts of the country came and went while we were there, among them Stuart of Philadelphia, Roland Dodge and McBurney of New York, Remington of Fall River, Moore of Boston, Fairbanks of Vermont, and others. While together we arranged for the compilation of hymns for our common use, we all agreed that it would be best to distribute our forces in different parts of the country and not be in the same locality. Nothing was more characteristic of Mr. Moody than his longing for retirement in the country from the press of his work. Though his life work lay for the most part in great cities, he was born a country lad, and for him the everlasting hills possessed a wealth of meaning and marvelous recuperative power. Some instinct drew him back to the soil. Some mysterious prompting impelled him to solitude, away from the crowds that absorbed so much of his strength. Then, after a little respite, 
he would return with new strength and new vitality. To learn more about God's peculiar people, visit the links in the description.